I'm Dr. Vanessa Sinclair, and this is Rendering Unconscious. Today's episode is a special one, a recording of a book launch event held on Saturday, November 21st, to celebrate the launch of Dr. Emma Lieber's new book, The Writing Cure. Dr. Lieber is a psychoanalyst in private practice in New York and part-time faculty in literary studies at Eugene Lane College. Her work has appeared or is forthcoming in Cabinet, The Point Magazine, Lit Hub, New England Review, The Massachusetts Review, European Journal of Psychoanalysis, Slavic Review, Slavic and East European Journal, among others. Dr. Lieber contributed two pieces to the anthology, Rendering Unconscious, Psychoanalytic Perspectives, Politics, and Poetry, Bellowing Presidents, and Dear Jill, Dear Chris. This book launch event for The Writing Cure brought together psychoanalysts and writers around the questions of transmission, psychoanalytic formation, and writing. Enjoy. Just a note, there is a video of this presentation available on YouTube, which is linked in the text accompanying this episode. Rendering Unconscious is also a book Rendering Unconscious, Psychoanalytic Perspectives, Politics, and Poetry from Chapart Books, 2019. For more, please visit our publisher's website, chapart.net. That's T-R-A-P-A-R-T dot net. You can support the podcast by visiting our Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com forward slash v-a-n-e-s-s-a two three c-a-r-l your support is greatly appreciated for more information you can also visit my website drvanessasinclair.net or the podcast main website renderingunconscious.org Links to everything can be found in the text accompanying this episode. Okay, why don't we get going? So thank you so much for joining us today. Um, You know, when the writing here, which actually I have here, I'll... So when this came out in the spring, I had been planning a party um, and was very excited about it, which is, you know, obviously not possible at the moment. It feels like uh, a lifetime ago that that was possible. Um, So we're left today only with the words that we have to send to each other, which is, I suppose, appropriate. Um, Patricia Garavici has pointed out that on Zoom, we all look like little postage stamps. 
Um, so <laughs> we're just, we're going to be, we're going to, we're going to see what postage stamps have to say or what they have to write today. That will be our project. Um, I'm, I'm recording. Um, so I'm just going to say a few words uh, about the book and then tell you how the event is going to go and then we'll get um, going with, with the reading. Um, and, I'm, and I'll be reading a little bit, um, excerpts from the book a little bit later. Um, you know, certainly this book is about writing and about what writing and psychoanalysis have to do with each other. Um, and I'll say that it's a, a book that I wrote in conjunction with um, we can say the later stages of my analysis um, with the sense that I had at the time that something of the analysis was asking to be supplemented by a kind of writing. Um, supplemented, which, you know, I think we can understand in the Derridian sense as a kind of post postscript to a letter. Um, and in a lot of ways, it's a book that's a love letter to psychoanalysis. Uh, and with the understanding also that psychoanalysis itself as a procedure is um, a, a kind of letter um, uh, that is an epistolary address to language and also to lack. And as Chris Krauss, who is the author of I Love Dick, among other things, says every letter is a love letter. And Chris Krauss, you know, for those of you who have read um, I Love Dick or others of her, of her work, um, Chris Cross was very important to me as I was writing this book, um, among other writers. You know, this is a book that was heavily influenced by um, the sort of auto-theoretical movement, um, you know, which is in certain ways a contemporary movement within literature, but it has very old antecedents. Um, these are works by people like Krauss, by Maggie Nelson, by Paul Preciado, by Frank Wilberson III, um, you know, and many, many other writers in that pantheon books that weave memoiristic writing with critical theory and analysis of text. Um, you know, and so at the time that I started writing several years ago, when I felt that I was kind of uniquely faced with a certain kind of blank page, I was also encountering the question of what it means to write psychoanalytically and also what it means to write as an analyst. Um, and interestingly enough, these were the texts these auto-theoretical um, works were the ones that allowed me to find my way through that question, precisely because these are texts that are so often written as love letters and because they're books that serve as a way for the writer to articulate her own formation as a subject. And as well because they're books that operate with the understanding that to theorize oneself or rather to articulate oneself at the place of the chiasmus between the personal and the theoretical, does not so much establish some content base of knowledge as it gets something done. These are texts that are performative rather than constative. They put something of desire on stage and in so doing they pay homage to the forms of language that one has received from elsewhere and around which one's own subjectivity is formed in commerce with that elsewhere. Um, so, as much as psychoanalysis is in its own way an auto-theoretical endeavor, and we can think of Freud's self-analysis, which of course was written as letters to a beloved who was not there, um, it seems to me that the auto-theoretical positioning is also in a sense a psychoanalytic one. 
And it also started to seem to me that psychoanalysts, you know, if we're if there's a question to be asked about, you know, what it means to write as an analyst, you know, what read what writing means to psychoanalysis, um, that psychoanalysts are actually distinctively tasked with writing in a kind of autotheoretical vein, with um, and sort of putting themselves into the scene of their own writing and whatever form that might take. Um, and I think that in this sense, it's really, it's this kind of performative dimension um, that allows a writing to properly engage and transmit the unconscious, which I think is, you know, perhaps the only appropriate way to transmit something of the unconscious and the ethic and practice of psychoanalysis, at the same time that it's also horribly embarrassing to write about yourself, <laughs> especially maybe as an analyst or as anyone. Um, and then I'll, I'll just end um, sort of these introductory remarks by saying that um, the way that Lacan takes up these questions is around his discourse on the formation and self-authorization of the analyst and his proposition that one's self-authorization involves finding a position from which to make a certain kind of authorial self-inscription into and with a community. Um, and this was also one of the motiv motivating factors of, um, in the writing of the book, this question of how a writing might be bound up with um, the process of analytic self-authorization with my process of analytic self-authorization, how a writing could be something that um, aided in my formation and authorization as an analyst. Um, thus, self-authorization is a form of authorship that is not so much addressed to a collective that then grants entry as in an institute, but it is one that inscribes itself by way of paying homage to and in concert with the self-authorizations of some collective of freely chosen others. As Lacan says, an analyst authorizes herself with some others. So all of the people that I've asked to read today are people with whom I've felt in concert throughout my formation as an analyst, people who, who have worked with me and on me, who have transmitted to me something of their own analytic formations and in so doing furthered and made, made possible mine. So I wanted to give space for them to read their inscriptions, to transmit something of their own formations or their sense of what formation and transmission is or means, which also means to give them space to share their love letters to psychoanalysis, whether or not they're written as such. And also to give all of you as participants the space to do the same in order to say, thank you for being my some others. <laughs> so, um, I'll just say how this is going to go. So um, we're going to go in the, uh, the readers are going to go in the order that is on the, the poster. Um, in the middle, we're going to go to breakout groups. And I'm hoping my technological chops are going to allow for this, but I, I think I'm going to, I'm going to figure it out. We're going to go to breakout groups um, where everybody who has come and brought a reading that they want to share will have the opportunity to read um, to, to read from their letters that they brought and also to schmooze to the extent that you want to. That'll last about 10 or, or 12 minutes. And then we'll come back to the big group and we'll finish up with the, with the reading. Sound good? Okay, so our first reader today is Sergio Benvenuto and he has wanted me to share his, to um, put his, and I'll just say, I think you all are doing this anyway so that if you're not reading, stay, stay on mute. Um, Sergio, I will show your letter. Does everyone see it? 
Okay. Thank you, Emma. Uh, <clears throat> thank you, especially for for having uh, invited me uh, because I'm. Uh, I think only of the few non-Americans <laughs> were part of this uh, nice meeting. Um, and uh, okay, I, I have some problems maybe uh, with my English. Uh, it's why uh, you know I, I propose to you uh, also uh, the written text. Uh, the, this is my letter, which uh, deals uh, with, with the, the process of, of writing in an analytic experience. Dear, dear colleagues, of course, psychoanalysts, uh, when we perform an analysis, exactly whose unconscious are we dealing with? At the times, one might say the unconscious is our it is a subjectivity borrowed from others. When some, some years ago, uh, Rossana, which in Italian means, uh, it's a fake name, uh, which means uh, uh, red, you know, in certain way. Uh, Rossana asked me uh, for an analysis. She herself was already practicing as a psychoanalyst. This 50-year-old woman had a charming and a happy uh, air uh, about her, and essentially had something really serious about, uh, uh, and essentially had nothing really serious about which uh, to complain. She was uh, happily married to a fairly well-to-do well man, her second husband, and uh, was satisfied with her grown-up children who lived abroad. The first year, I asked myself why Rosanna had decided to, to, to undertake an analysis. Her only real problem was a certain growing resentment towards her training analyst, a woman, who at times made her feel as having fallen, fallen out of favor, and she had always wanted to be uh, the, the favorite, the, the favorite of everybody, women, men. But uh, her professional success only grew which attributed uh, to her analysis, to the point uh, that uh, she was earning even more than her, her husband. She, she became uh, almost rich. And uh, yet there was uh, something just uh, not right in her life. She was uh, the older of two daughters. Her old childhood and uh, adolescence had been dominated by the figure of a father whom she adored had oriented her towards uh, an appreciation of the literature and the culture. With respects to this brilliant father, for whom she described herself as a, his preferred woman, her mother was instead described as a mediocre, dependent, and whining. And for her sister Bianca, uh, Bianca, it's white, I mean, uh, she described it, the relationship as almost inexistent, neither hateful nor affectionate. I like her, school proved difficult for Bianca, who did not follow any intellectual path, who never married but had a child from a floundering relationship, who became an alcoholic and had a series of humble jobs. But she later joined Alcoholics Anonymous and got back on her feet. When their mother dies, her sister does not even come to the funeral, nor, nor visit her mother's graveside. She just drops out of, of sight from 
Rossana. During her analysis with me, Rossana comes to discover that Bianca is now also practicing, practicing as a psychologist or psychotherapist, is overseeing a group of colleagues and seems to be very much appreciated by the institute for which she works. Her degraded image of her sister begins to shift. And when Rosanna starts to look into this institute where her sister is working, it starts to look better than her own. And after uh, decades of non-communication, the two sisters begin to talk and to see each other. Years earlier, Rosanna had written and published poetry and had enjoyed the local success with highly applauded readings. Her poetry was largely melancholic, some of it uh, even desperate and uh, threaded by a poignant sense of loss and lack, a sort of a saudade, the Portuguese would say. You know? Her li literary production contrasts sharply with Rosanna's personality, that of a winning woman satisfied, enterprising, and appreciated by important men. In one session, she recounts how during a recent move, she came across some old photo albums that her father and mother had put together and uh, which she had uh, completely forgotten. She was disconcerted because in none of the photos did her sister appear. Only her father, Red Hansen, her mother, herself. And she says, uh, Bianca meant nothing to my parents, and yet she was beautiful. Abruptly, she changed uh, subject. She recalls an evening where she gave a, a poetry reading. Afterwards, a friend complimented her, but asked, but who is this sad, desperate woman who speaks uh, th through your poetry? You're an entrepreneur, determined. You, uh, you uh, stand out. Who is she? I mean, the poet. Uh, Rosanna asks herself the same question. It, it suddenly dawns on me, uh, and I say to her, maybe the woman speaking through your poetry is Bianca. Rosanna blushes. She's absolutely struck, moved, is on the verge of tears. She says she wants to cut short session. In our successive sessions, she will say it is true, uh, albeit unthinkable. Uh, it was not her speaking in the poems, but her sister. Her sister removed from the family scene, where they never enjoyed the paternal admiration reserved to her older sister, who had lived in the shadow of her successful rich sister. It was the cry of the neglected sister. And from the moment that she had shared began analysis, Rosanna had ceased to write poetry. At this point, the actual sister was herself able to speak with her own voice. She no longer needed the, 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 the poetic medium of her sister. Did my interpretation grasp something of Rosanna's unconscious or is uh, uh, just my uh, poetic uh, creation, you know, why not? And yet Rosanna uh, did not carry uh, the missing relationship with her sister as her own 
symptom. Lacan said that the neurotic and psychotic symptom, praxis, dreams, and jokes are formation, uh, formations of the unconscious. But perhaps even poetic works in the widest sense should be formations of the unconscious. While they may not draw laughter like jokes, jokes do, they do give a certain enjoyment to others, other than to themselves. Rousseau's poetry was thus a formation of her own unconscious. But the point is that uh, here the unconscious that speaks seems to be uh, of another, I mean, uh, her sister. Certainly, uh, Lacan uh, did say that the unconscious is uh, the, the discourse of the big other. But the big other is not someone, even if someone always takes the place of the big other. Bianca had taken the, the place of Rosanna's unconscious, that something repressed, that Rosanna had never utilized, and hence by impression of a poor, elementary unconscious in uh, Rosanna, but, but which she needed to grab hold of uh, as a prothesis of creation in order to write and give to her own life a sadness she lacked. The sister repressed by the family came to occupy the hymn, which Rosanna did not have, but which she needed as a sort of a lifeblood in order to keep, to keep from drowning in the fluctuating waters of life, according to her dream, who told me before her confession. Okay, it's all. Thank you, Sergio. Sergio, you're at, you have to end a letter, love Sergio, <laughs> right? Excuse me, uh, okay, sorry? You're, you have to end your letter, love Sergio. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> Forgot the end, sign off. Uh, Next yes. week. <laughs> ah, Next yeah, week. Sure. Uh, yes, <laughs> I'm sorry. Yeah. <laughs> Next we have Barbara Browning. There, I had a little trouble unmuting myself. You can hear me? Yes. Okay. So I did as instructed because I do as instructed. I wrote this last night. Beloved friend, I missed your Zoom thing about keeping a notebook because I had to take Imre to the doctor. Nothing urgent, just an appointment for one of those chronic things we all have. Making medical appointments these days for the normal ways our bodies slowly and inevitably collapse over time feels strange, of course, but we're trying not to forget about all those slow things, even as we try to avoid panic about the fast thing we're all worried about. I was sorry not to hear you talk about keeping a notebook. Maybe I've told you this, Imre's kept a journal since he was 19. A journal means dozens of volumes, actually, almost 50 years now of daily entries, some of which he later pilfers for song lyrics or essays, but most of which are just consigned to the pages of little thread-bound Clairefontaine notebooks. Sometimes he wonders who would read these besides himself, his kids? Not likely. It would take weeks, maybe months, to get through the jottings, some barely legible even to himself, full of banalities, details, 
some occasional revelation that may or may not strike even them as significant. I've never kept a journal. I write letters instead. In fact, when we wrote a book together, alternating chapters, his all read as journal entries. Mine were all letters addressed to him. I find it a little difficult to write if I'm not imagining my dear reader, even if that's not the, if, even if that's not the only person who will read my words or even if that person won't understand them or read them at all. I still need to address someone. There's maybe something predictable about this juxtaposition, writing ostensibly to oneself, writing ostensibly to another, and our respective genders. But of course that's too simple. And it's too simple to say that's really who we've been writing to. I also pilfer things from my letters when I write novels. And look, I'm writing you this missive so secretly, consider, considering reading it on somebody else's Zoom thing about writing letters. Maybe I won't even send it to you. Anyway, writing in a notebook and writing a letter have one thing in common, which is handwriting. I recently submitted a sample of my handwriting to an online graphologist, and I received the following report. To begin the analysis, the first aspect of the handwriting is to consider the flow. Some handwriting is rigid and taut, while other script has great flow, fluency, and vitality. This handwriting adopts the middle line between these two extremes. The subject has carefully maintained a style which achieves a middle ground between complete freedom and total control. This reflects a desire to avoid extremes, and it is also likely to reveal itself in other aspects of her life. She may tend to adopt either a controlled and conformist attitude, or equally, may choose to follow a freer, more conformist lifestyle. Which course is adopted will very much depend on the circumstances of the time, and is never likely to be as extreme as would be found in individuals with fully restrained or released scripts. I think there's maybe somebody might want to mute there. Uh, I'll just continue with my handwriting analysis. Sergio, I think maybe your sound is still on. My sound uh, is, uh, is okay, I, I, I hear you. Yeah, no, no, I mean, I think maybe you want to mute because I think we're hearing uh, something, maybe. No, nope. no, no. Okay. Uh, it's okay. Okay. Here. I'll, I'm, okay. I'll just continue. I'll just continue. The pressure, I, I'm continuing with the analysis of my handwriting. This is not psychoanalysis. This is graphology. The pressure used throughout the script is average in intensity, indicating that the subject is able to maintain a balance between too much activity and too great a degree of lethargy. As a result, she lacks the intense drive and enthusiasm shown by writers with heavy pressure, but will be equally tolerant of inactivity and those who use a lower pressure in their script. She will be good at working methodically at the more routine tasks. The habitual use of black ink indicates a strong attitude toward communication. The subject is concerned with precision, exactitude, and in the clear understanding of all aspects of the message she is trying to convey. She has a strong desire to make herself clear and to avoid confusion. Frequently, the habitual use of black ink is associated with people in professions which demand a high degree of precision, such as accountancy, 
engineering, mathematics, and such. A number of artful simplifications in the handwriting show that the subject is considerably intelligent, scoring three out of a possible five in the IQ categories. She has the intellectual capacity that would enable her to be successful in a career such as teaching, journalism, or computer programming. That's the end of the analysis. None of this came as a surprise. I often write letters by hand and send them through the mail. This doesn't mean I don't use email. As you know, I send plenty of those too. I'm writing one now, but I love letters. That bit about black ink in my handwriting analysis is actually a little off. It's true that if I use a pen, it's usually one with black ink, but my stylus of preference is the pencil because I like to be able to erase things. I suppose this still counts as evidence of a desire to make myself clear and to avoid confusion, but it also evidences my tendency to change my mind and maybe to create confusion. Sometimes instead of erasing, I purposefully cross something out in order to register my own rethinking things or even my own accidents. Although my writing is quite clear, I occasionally also purposefully write a word a little messily such that it might be construed in two ways, both of which interest me. I feel a little guilty when I fudge things like that, but not very. Anyway, these are some of the reasons that I still send letters through the post. Maybe you know this. Pencil comes etymologically from the Latin word for tail. So does penis. So does penicillin. XO. Thank you, Barbara. Next, we have Lauren Dent. Thanks, Emma. Reading Emma's book provoked a series of what she called happenings and developments that seem written as if authored from somewhere else. I felt a sense of getting caught up in it somehow, being written into the text conjoining a series of proper names and signifiers that have been determinate in my own falling upon psychoanalysis. Especially wistful for me was her evocation of Derrida, one of the elders who lured me out of my wary high school intoxication and into the library of the state school I attended. Then there's the fact that my analyst's name finds itself as a signature on many of translations of Derrida's text in English, which has prompted a series of hilarious parapraxies in the sessions that have led up to this event. Emma's book is a plea for the epistolary. Letters are everywhere, and in fact, it seems the whole thing is a letter to us, or someone, or one, or another. But her letter is circuitous, purloined even. How could one not think of the letter as stolen? in reading Emma's book. After all, she has confessed to a jouissance in plagiarism. From old French, purloined carries a sense of not just stolen, but put off, delayed, and put far away. In English, purloined etymologically is to be prolonged. The sense of prolongment in detour was underscored by Lacan in his 1956 seminar on Poe. He goes so far as to suggest a better term would have been in French, 
en souffrance, which means a letter awaiting delivery in the mail, but literally means suffering. We suffer in waiting the letter's detour. So where does Emma's letter arrive? Lacan insists in his commentary that the letter, as pure signifier, always arrives at its destination. And this is the claim that gets him into some hot water. It always arrives as destination insofar as it is destined in its detour. Hence Emma's claim that there is something both contingent and necessary in the end-to-end analysis. Somehow a signifier ends up back in the right hand, including circulating around and within the analyst in the transference. In his 18th seminar, a quarter of a century after his first commentary, Lacan returns to the Purloin letter. He raises the question of how the letter, in suspense, relates to castration. Everyone in Poe's story, Lacan quips, is cuckolded. And thus the letter, pure signifier, has what Lacan calls a feminizing effect. I don't find this good old fashioned phallic aspect all that interesting. Um, what's more interesting to me is the relationship Lacan suggests between writing and castration. And he asks, and this is a quote, is the one who writes not radically different from the one who speaks in her own name as the narrator in the writing? In other words, He's introducing the distinction between statement and enunciation, uh, something that I think Emma performs beautifully. Emma takes up this problem in Freud, where he inserts the theory of castration to make up for his own refusal of writerly castration. This is the impasse, I think, of all psychoanalytic theory and transmission, which are central concerns for Emma. Psychoanalytic theory, in attempting to transmit knowledge, asserts meaning in the place of a refusal. Emma's book beautifully demonstrates something of the writing in suspense, a repudiation of closure, or as Aline Sizu suggests, quote, the volume comes to an end, but the writing continues. And for the reader, this means being thrust into the void. So as a letter to us, Emma signs her book with love, along with a promise to let us know upon the ending of her analysis when the letter finds its destination. But until then, we have to wait and we have to suffer. Thanks. Thank you, Lauren. Next, we have Anna Fishlam. Okay, thanks, Emma. I think I'm going to read from the screen and see how it got like, well, it's just going to have to go. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Um, it was around five years ago that Emma told me uh, about something called auto theory. She asked if I had any interest in contributing to a collection she was then planning to edit. I admit that I was more than a little squeamish. At that time, I had just begun analytic training and was leaving academia. The idea of revealing myself in this way through personal writing made me terribly anxious. 
and it still does. I'd, I'd written a book in which I'd analyzed love letters of 19th century opera fans, but I couldn't imagine exposing my own loves. In September 2017, I was diagnosed with intraductal carcinoma, and a year and a half and four surgeries later, I decided to write a book. I struggled to name its genre. It is auto theory, a love letter to my analyst, to my mother, to my breasts, to myself. In the context of the pandemic, the book and the very process of writing has taken on new valences. Skype sessions impel me to reflect on what the absence of my analyst's body means for my analysis, on the way his corporeality held open a future and temporality as such while enabling me and my associative fog to traverse the past and present. It has highlighted the role, of, uh, the role my own body plays in my patient's analyses, the libidinal dangers their bodies bring the breath that escapes each utterance, each word, the materiality of their voices that confront my ears and eyes. Now, as I write my book, I have even more appreciation for the project Emma advocates. Psychoanalytic genres like hers inspire me, give me courage on a feminine path to sublimation. As I become an analyst, I write my analysis, I create experience where there was only void writing myself and my loss into being. So now I'll just read uh, two short excerpts from my manuscript, uh, the first from an early chapter. I'm going to sit up today, I'm too anxious, I announced as I made my way to the leather armchair. He ambled across the consulting room and sat in the identical chair facing me. I'd moved to the couch a few weeks into the treatment and had been lying down for over a year. The room looked eerily unfamiliar from the upright seated perspective. It was bigger and colder than I'd remembered. I noticed my analyst's fingers wrapped around the armrests, gripping them tightly as if braced for a plane crash. Behind him loomed a Georgia O'Keeffe print, trite and hideous. Like my analyst, it was positioned beside the couch, usually uh, out of my sight. What would he and the analysis mean to me now in this catastrophic moment? Our work together seemed ill-timed, irrelevant. A paraphrase of Zizek's quip about philosophy resounded in my mind. Psychoanalysis does not solve problems. Its duty is to redefine problems to show that what we experience as a problem is a false problem. When faced with a true problem, let's say a natural disaster or a deadly virus, a real threat, you don't need psychoanalysis. You need good science to find a solution. Oncologists, Xanax, imaging, surgery were required at present. I dreaded and hoped for hollow reassurance and the promise of phone sessions. My analysts would offer neither. Desperate, I searched his face for evidence of panic. He appeared serious and thoughtful, but calm. His hands remained glued to the armrests. I have cancer, I heard myself say. So, um, and this is from a later chapter on shame, which is in dialogue with uh, Eve Sedgwick and Joan Kopchak. In traffic on the Brooklyn-Queens Expressway a week after 9-11, I saw the carcass of the Twin Towers for the first time. Once welcoming and majestic, they now rose from smoke an unsightly twisted piece of steel, a silent scream. My heart pounded as I strained to assimilate the unbearable. On that occasion, it wasn't the absence of the World Trade Center, but its ghastly remains that triggered anxiety. They conjured past injuries and potential destruction, the caving of memory, history, and sense a stain anticipating future losses. Eventually the tower's ruins were cleared away and their footprints converted from a gaping hole into a solemn memorial to the victims. 
But what if one of the towers had stood? What would it have been like to see the North Tower without its Southern counterpart? Would passers-by have looked away, head averted and cheeks flushed, unable to integrate the altered landscape, the sole tower bereft, stripped of its original meaning, transformed into a testament to its obliterated double, a memorial to the primordial loss? Would New Yorkers have felt twice the shame? Would they have borne witness to the split in themselves, their own unconscious and castration? With both towers gone, pedestrians gradually adjusted and ceased searching for the old skyline. After some years, the tower's absence made possible a new consciousness and a new horizon of expectation. If one tower had remained, would we continue to experience a void? The concept of originality took shape and acquired value only after the advent of a mechanical reproduction of exact copies. Similarly, the presence of one tower brings the loss of its twin into sharp relief. It invites the partial return of the gaze and the lingering hope of recognition. Even momentary forgetting becomes impossible. And so if one tower had survived, what would we have done? We would have rushed to bury the corpse, erase the uncanny remainder. We would have, cover, we would have, to cover, we would have covered it up with another presence, a double phallus. We might have rebuilt the second tower, made it larger, more ornate, with laser beams and spires and screens. What deluge of wealth, what immense resources of labor and capital would have been proffered in order to ensure our collective forgetting, to reduce the shame of origin and amputation, the disappointment of our, our unmet gaze? Thanks, Emma, for letting me read this. Thank you, Anna. Next, we have Julie Fotheringham. <laughs> All right. So my piece is called A Proper Petite, an Object Petite A Doesn't Jabber On About Herself. It's been said that an analyst shouldn't disclose too much. Obviously not in session, but not in writing either. In Emma's writing cure, my eyes perked up at every personal disclosure, the scandalous eyes and mys of an analyst talking about herself. Forget Freud and Lacan. The good stuff is nestled in between, in the story of marriage bedbugs. <clears throat> what is okay for an analyst to share? Or how naked can I get? I have the fantasy of writing a memoir, but it could never be published, like my personal blog that requires a password, but no one has the password. I may as well call it a diary. But what of my naked body, already exposed in video documentation on my performance website? What to do about that? I was practicing performance long before I began practicing psychoanalysis. My Freudian training analyst broke his vow of silence to state clearly to me that my naked flesh would traumatize my patients, like the shock of the primal scene. Following that session, I immediately deleted my entire performance presence from the internet. In an interview somewhere, Jameson Webster responds to a conserv conservative claim that it's vulgar for an analyst to be an artist as art exposes too much. She maintains that nothing destroys the patient's capacity for having a fantasy, especially about their analyst. There's always room for desire beyond what is shown. The object ah is always somewhere else. I concocted a compromise formation and put the videos back up while requiring a password to enter. This time the password would be visible right next to the video. 
perhaps it's a non-solution, <clears throat> but now there's no danger in accidentally happening upon the primal scene. A patient would have to turn the key and willfully peek in. Or maybe I'm just being stubborn. I refuse to kill the performance, uh, my perfor I refuse to kill off my performance self in order to become a sterile, purified idea of an analyst. I appreciate Aunt, uh, Emma for showing her desire in writing, gracefully navigating the personal and the public, exposing just the right amount of herself. Thank you, Julie. Next, we have Patricia Garavici. Thank you. Authorization letter to act, to whom it may concern. I was first a writer before I became an analyst. I was working as a journalist while I was a student in the mid 1980s at the University of Buenos Aires in my native Argentina. During those years in Buenos Aires, I did a lot of writing. Besides my student papers, I worked for a newspaper, cultural supplement, a news agency, and for two magazines. But my favorite job was at the then best-selling monthly women's magazine named Emmanuel. The name Emmanuel was a wink to the 1970s erotic film that was released in the US and described as, quote, the longest caress in French cinema. A reader, like that of the U.S. Cosmopolitan magazine, was a quote-unquote modern woman, sexually aware, and the material in the magazine was uninhibited and often contentious, enjoying a new freedom in democracy after the dark years of the 1976-1983 dictatorship that was based on state terror and that was responsible for the torture and assassination of 30,000 people. Since I was uh, studying psychology and also psychoanalysis, I was assigned two regular columns. One was answering questions about relationships, which gave me the opportunity to offer personal advice to readers, such as how to make love to your spouse after 20 years of marriage. I was 21 years old at the time, which proves that advice and personal experience can be mutually exclusive. The other regular column was called Alter States. And there, an anonymous analyst, Dr. S, shared, broke, broke the third wall of confidentiality and shared dramatic stories from, quote, real cases of those who locked themselves up in their pathologies because they refused to accept reality, end quote. Thus, revealing the most challenging cases of the incurable patients that Dr. S treated or attempt to treat. This column, written in the first person singular before I started practicing, taught me that any case narration is a reconstruction. This was a continuation, there was a continuation from that early career to my practice as a psychoanalyst. Indeed, the process of analysis itself can be seen as one of writing, with the huge difference that the writer has to be done by the analysis. A successful analysis works like writing, rewriting, editing, uh, and plays on authorship and authorization. Unlike my graphomaniac Dr. X, Lacan never risked himself in that journey. Lacan never published case history. Maybe for him, theory replaced the narrative of case treatment. At least this is a real question for me 
facing Lacan, whose style is much more poetic, aphoristic, or downright philosophical, skewing the detailed narrative, combining the portrait of the analyst with an account of the curious progressions. You will not find that either in his seminars or in his écrit. What is the role of writing in the unique unraveling of a singular cure? Lacan talks about the transformative passage from analysis to analyst in terms of self-authorization, as Emma mentioned earlier on in the introduction. This is an authorization that reveals a subjective desire that does not depend on the other, big other, capital O. In 1974, Lacan reformulated this idea and specified that analysts authorize themselves and from some others. This was when he extended the concept of the analyst self-authorization by stating that one's only authorization as a sex being comes from oneself, and he adds, from some others. What does it mean that the radical principle of self-authorization for the training of psychoanalysts should also apply to matters of sexual identity? Is Lacan putting forward a new ethics of sexual difference that will rely on self-authorization? And what would be the implications of this in the transmission of psychoanalysis? When in 1967, Lacan came up with the formula that analysts derive their authorizations only from themselves, he was highlighting that being an analyst is not a title granted by an institution. All the institutions can do is, quote, provide the guarantee that an analyst has come out of his training, end quote. Indeed, being an analyst derived from an act of self-authorization located in this area of ambiguity between the author as the composer of a work and authority as having power or control. Such an act interrogates both the function of an author and of authority. This choice should not depend on the big other, whose roles can be taken by moral duty, the law, institutional or social customs, or similar institutions. The radically simple principle of self-authorization for the training of psychoanalysts involves therefore an ethical decision. I am an analyst, an affirmation of being that results from the desire produced by an analysis. It is a surprising side effect for someone who is in analysis and who at some point, as a consequence of this process, desires to become an analyst. In my own personal history, my first experience of psychoanalysis was as a child. It was followed by a second analysis as an adolescent, and then a third one as a young adult. A tranche or slice came in my late 20s and lasted until my mid-30s. I had worked with analysts who were in succession, Anna Freudian, Kleinian, uh, Anna Freudian, Freudian, Kleinian, and Lacanian. I do not have a diploma from a Lacanian school. I came to authorize myself as an analyst in a context in which psychoanalysis was not supposed to happen. Originally, I was not expected, supposed, or permitted to be acting as a psychoanalyst. I had carefully rephrase and in some places even erase the very word psychoanalysis from my resume to secure getting hired as a staff psychologist in my first job in a barrio clinic in the late 1980s. 
It was not, it was in that context, in an office that did not have an analytic couch, but had enough space to recreate the quasi-Freudian stage that I found myself positioned as an analyst, sustaining the hypothesis of the unconscious, asking my, asking my, asking my, my dreams in my ample consulting room in the Centro de Servicios para Hispanos, in a decrepit building that had been a funeral home in better times, I became an analyst. This may have been because, as Lacan suggests, I was in the position of the dummy, or truly, I was plain dead. My office, with these incongruously elaborate flower carvings in the walls, wood paneling and its tired, lumpy, brownish-orange carpet, had been one of the funeral's home's lounges. My office was the place where caskets were displayed for visitation. Thus, in the early 90s, I would sit in an enormous, beaten-up steel tanker desk behind me. My clients, as we were requested to call the people we serve, because we use a term that offers them the illusory empowerment as economic agents. After all, healthcare is a business like any other. Uh, and, and I created with these butter chairs a sort of Freudian theories. In those unpropitious conditions, I invited patients to become analysts. I did this first by asking them to sit looking at the window, facing away from my gaze so as to avoid fa the face-to-face -face model of interpersonal relation. To say that the barrio was tough is an understatement. On a daily basis, one of my patients would report a crime-related death. There was even a drive-by shooting in the middle of the day, just under one of my office windows. From time to time, while watering the plants in my office, I thought of the rows of wooden coffins that the morticians had laid in that room for viewing. It was in that context that I would tell my patients to say whatever comes to mind. I gave myself the freedom to take distance from the prevalent mandates of the therapeutic model of the orthopedics of the mind, not knowing anything about family therapy or cognitive therapy, having no interest in engaging in a pedagogical modality of treatment. I discovered myself by default to be working as a psychoanalyst. I was practicing in an environment that was hostile to conceiving that psychoanalytic world with poor and disenfranchised minority people in a ghetto setting was even possible. This was a choice that granted me the freedom and helped me survive in a challenging setting and offer a new perspective to my former clients. My position as an analyst was linked to the authority provided by my awareness that the poor are poor but can afford to have an unconscious. Lacan spoke of authorization rather than certification of the psychoanalyst, which introduces a significant dialectic. When Lacan came up with the formula, the, the analyst authorized himself, herself, he was highlighting the ambiguity of the terms author and authority. The root of those words is the Latin augere, which means to grow, to increase as in augmentation. It suggests a futurity, as in the word over, which defines both the authority of the past and the futurity of authorship. As David Lichtenstein notes in clinical work, this dialectic of authority is ever-present. By what authority do I say this? It's a question that each party encounters in analytic work. The only true answer to the analyst question, 
what authorized my intervention is then prepare an authorized speech of the analysis. The author is in this exchange. Who is the author in this exchange? Is indeed difficult to locate in either place. Lacan proposes that when confronted with sexual difference, we have to take sides. There is a male side linked to phallic enjoyment, and there is a female side whose forms of enjoyment are not fully subjected to the phallus. These two positions are not determined by biology, but by a logic of unconscious investment, to the point that, for instance, a cis male can nevertheless inscribe himself on the female side. Freed from the shackles of anatomy, the assumption of a gender positioning has to do with self-authorization in speech. Here the idea is that authorization of a subject as a sexual being, man, woman, or anything else, originates in oneself that in matters of sexual difference, one proceeds from one's own authorization. Sexual positioning, like self-authorization for the analyst, are both placed in this area of ambiguity between author and authority. The, so this, uh, the phrase that Lacan author, uh, employs is a variant of the aphorism, the analyst authorized himself or herself. To authorize oneself as a man, woman, or something else altogether involves an ethical decision, as also happens when pondering the position an analyst should adopt. Here, psychoanalytic ethics meets a new ethics of sexual difference. A psychoanalysis, as Freud notes, like governing and educating, psychoanalysis is an impossible profession. Being a Lacanian is not being any kind of Freudian, but a political Freudian. That is, a critical Freudian. And at times, I am a critical Lacanian as well. An analyst who intervenes in the field to rewrite it, redefine it, reinvent it. Thank you. Thank you, Patricia. Next, we have Erica Rowe, who is not only an analyst and a writer, but an artist. And she did the, uh, the beautiful art for the cover of the book. And she's going to show some art and do some reading as well. OK, can you hear me? Great. So in the spring of 2016, a year after I started training as an analyst, I began drawing the sculpture called River by Aristide Moyer. My analyst office is located a few blocks away from the MoMA here in New York City. While I waited for my time to speak, I would stop by the sculpture garden on nice days. I had just begun to draw at what I could call a more serious level at this time. And by serious, I mean I began filling notebooks with drawings. I was seeing my analyst three times a week, and I was filling three notebooks a month with quick sketches of whatever my eyes landed on. Lael's sculpture continued to fall every time I walked into the garden, and I found in my attempts to illustrate that tumble something close to my analysis at the time. This is my illustration of the three weeks of analysis in the summer of 2016. This is the first sketch that I made. This is in spring, in May. And then I'll go into... Uh, summer. This is one week in July. This is on Monday. On Wednesday. Friday, the last day of that week. The next week on Monday, 
I came back and drew her again. On Wednesday, it was raining, so I went into a church and drew from memory. On Friday. There was a vacation. This was the first one after the vacation. The next one that week. The last one of that week. Oh, that was the last one that was before and this was after analysis. It must have been a really beautiful day. I went back. I wrote a letter for Emma's, um, for this event, and so I wrote it to this tumbling woman. Dear tumbling woman, when I first saw you falling, I was concerned that you might break. This, of course, is laughable because when I actually start looking at you, since you are so large, so heavy, you could crush anyone before you broke yourself. But it has been a while since I last saw you. Have you broken? I've been meaning to ask you, but museums have been closed for a while. And then when I did go, it had rained earlier in the day and I was not allowed to go to the garden. Did you see me on the fifth floor? I went to the window to look down to see you, even though those windows give me vertigo. You were twisted up as if you were trying to see something far away. That was me, but maybe that twist was not for me. One needs to balance somehow. I feel a permanent balance that aches every time my eyes land on you. How can you still be tumbling? is falling better than landing. I didn't know I would have so many questions still. I must have sketched you over a hundred times. It was impossible sketching you. You never stayed still, so precarious that it is sexy. You should be happy to know that I have tumbled a few times since I last saw you. It has been a wild year. I'll show you next time I'm in the garden if you have not landed yet. Yours, Erica. Thank you, Erica. Yes, it I was talking like with the the, uh, the 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 Halu group uh, about uh, the fact that in the set of uh, way uh, the real letter. Uh, no, I was quoting um, Kafka's letter to uh, his father. No, and uh, which was letter which never was read by the father. It uh, it was a, a lost letter, uh, a missed letter, and uh, I wonder uh, if in a certain way. Uh, all literature, uh, it's a missed letter <clears throat> uh, in, in sense that it never re reaches the real uh, addressee. Uh, it was a, a fantasy which came to my mind talking with our friends. <laughs> well, I was able to stop into a few breakout groups and heard some beautiful writing. So thank you all for coming in. Um, we'll get back going with the readers and um, we'll start. I'm going to read a little bit, some excerpts from the book. Um, these are excerpts from the book that have to do with writing and femininity. I conceived this book on my birthday. My husband helped a little bit, just the slightest insemination, which seems to be what I ask of him. I told him some things I had been thinking for a long time, and he said that could be a book. Which only means what my husband gave, what perhaps he has always essentially given, was an articulation of form. Form impregnates matter. Where to for that which is to receive all forms should have no form. That's Plato. 
but what is what has ever been the relation between the two. Anyway, there is something wrong with that metaphor. I think I am writing this book in order to correct for myself that something wrong, in order no longer to have to wait for that form-giving gesture, much as I am also grateful for it. My psychoanalyst was involved in the conception too, albeit remotely, which is how she always acts. We were on our way to a party where I knew we would see her. From this strange threesome, a book was born. If I conceive a book on my birthday, is it mine or my mother's? Is it mine or me? And me mine? My logic gets twisted here along with the grammar, subject or object, and the biology, conception or birth. The timing of the book's conception was probably intended to continue twisting that logic, just enough to finally get out of it. Maybe you can twist and twist a knot so much that it just falls away. Shoshana Fellman writes about Freud's dream of Irma's injection as a way of interrogating the split vision of male and female reading and writing. The he said, she said of Freud writing about women and women writing about Freud. That is, as a way of articulating the ways they search for and miss each other. And also in order to talk about Freud's desire to read women better and to move away from the injected male solutions to the problem of women's desire that the dream both suggests his, traffic, his practice traffics in and condemns. Thus, the dream, according to Fellman, avows the wish to give birth to psychoanalysis otherwise, without such synthetic solutions. Female desire is the founding enigma of psychoanalysis, and as a man, Freud cannot quite read it, competing in pregnancy as he is at the time of the dream with his wife. But at least he wants to read women better. Perhaps that desire is enough. Quote, the analytical fecundity, unquote, of the Irma dream, writes Fellman, quote, proceeds from the doctor's destitution of his mastery. The subject of the dream is saying, this is Fellman still, I myself am a patient, a hysteric. I myself am creative only insofar as I can find a locus of fecundity in my own suffering. The dream is saying that for Freud to give birth to psychoanalysis, the patient has first to give birth to, birth to herself to her own therapy, to her own truth, end quote. My sexual theory as a child was that babies were made in hospitals with the help of nurses and doctors, a medical intervention. These things can't just happen, can they? As though their emergence in a hospital, my brother was born when I was four, retroactively situates the site of their inception. I also thought that all knowledge comes from taking classes. Hospitals and schools, where else can anything be conceived? I used to follow around the handymen in our home, asking them how they learned to hammer and solder, whether, whether they had gone to school for it, desperate to know the secret of such mastery. Then the horror, the penis gets hard. How on earth does that happen? I figured they, handymen, doctors, must put it in the freezer. I'm not sure whether I thought it was detachable for that purpose. Can I take the class too? Only on this writing have I connected my infantile sexual theory with what has turned out to be one of my more persistent symptoms, which is a tendency to get so cold in winter that I have to take a half hour long shower to warm up. If penises go in freezers and you don't have a penis, then I guess you must be the freezer. Navels then as points of generation and transmission, I am formed by virtue of another, the navel, the nexus that can be apprehended but never properly plumbed. 
The dream navel to Freud is the quilting point that opens up to the abyss where interpretation fails because as the place of transmission, it is the place of language itself. Feldman writes that the navel of the Irma dream is the nodal point at which three women in Freud's life are in the dream figurally layered. Three women joined by a navel at the limit of language and knowledge, that limit figured in the dream precisely as the tie among women. The simultaneity of Freud's discovery as a result of the Irma dream of wish fulfillment as the meaning of dreams and of the dream navel as the limit of meaning functions to undercut forms of wishful mastery, the dream's male solutions, semen, tri trimethylamine, to the problem of female desire, as they are applied to femininity and sexual difference, thus assuring that the discovery of wish fulfillment in dreams is a wholly other kind of solution. In this sense, the female resistance that provokes the dream, Irma's resistance to cure, is figured in Freud's dream paradoxically as the inexhaustibility of the unconscious. Much as Irma's hysterical pain in the dream, her knot in the throat by which she is umbilically knotted to the other women with whom she is associated, is also the nodding nodal action of the dream navel, the dream a woman inside of whom is another and another. Early in my analysis, I dreamt of a book ostensibly written by my analyst. Its cover was Baroque with a title that curved like the dome of a church. It was called Archangels and Demons. And it identified my analyst after her name as woman psychoanalyst and potential theologian. All of the things it was impossible to be, she somehow was, down to the movement of potentiality and desire. Becoming a psychoanalyst is only an achievement insofar as it opens to elsewhere. That I identified these impossible positions as that which she either was or had was my neurotic deadlock. Of course, the book was mine. I had dreamt it. For crying out loud, everyone is a potential theologian. In a fit of self-reproach the other day, why haven't I done more with my life? Why haven't I written a book yet? Why isn't the book I want to write already written? I found myself Googling myself. Maybe everyone does this every once in a while as a form of self-assurance. Look, when people look you up on the internet, this is what they see. Look at everything you've done. Look at all the articles you've written. Look at how competent you seem. That's you. What a big gir girl you are. Google, which offers a self-reflection in letters. The internet, the mirror stage for literate grown-ups. It's horribly embarrassing. What was amazing to me in this shameful act of self-research was the discovery that I had, in fact, already written a book. It's there on Amazon and on Google Books, God's Children by Emma Lieber, published in 1921. It seems to be part of a series of lost classics, old and underestimated books that have been rehabilitated and republished by a publishing house called Forgotten Books. Talk about the mirror stage in letters. Your book is already written. It was underestimated once, but now it's seen for what it really is. But heed well, it was written by someone else. Your double, your old and future self, whole, capable, finished, adult, already exists, but you're not it. And it's forgotten. Evidently, God's children is an impassioned call for parents to talk to their children about sex, to include their kids in the scene of knowledge and desire. Evidently, it offers an implicit or maybe explicit, I don't know, I've only read a few pages online, 
association between sexuality and grace, even as it also includes some extremely distasteful moments about the suppression of carnal appetite and the achievement of racial purity. I don't know if my dream book, Archangels and Demons, which itself presaged this present book, The Writing Cure, was a reference to that book, God's Children, which I may very well have seen years ago during an earlier fit of Google despair. It seems plausible. In which case, The Writing Cure, an attempt in part to explain to my children whether or not they will ever read it, something about the conditions of their becoming as it was bound up in my analysis, and also about desire as a figuration of grace, will be the fulfillment of a dream book from the beginning of my analysis, itself the residue of a forgotten book written by a me who is also a past me or perhaps a future me, but in any case, a not me. The end of analysis may well be a new way of writing oneself, an aesthetic event. It is not not me. I made it myself, but not alone. Its making takes place in the space of address. The paradox of the process of analysis, which is the paradox of Nakhtroglikite, is that with another, you write yourself as the book that you will have been, but will no longer continue to be once you have written it. And yet this does not mean writing your autobiography, or at least an engagement with the unconscious puts to question the status of autobiography or self-writing, as though it wasn't already. If Freud's theory of dreams reveals the ways in which these unconscious productions tell us something that we didn't know about our own autobiography, then psychoanalytic dream theory creates what Fellman calls, quote, a revolution in the very theory of autobiography, end quote. Psychoanalytic theory is Freud's autobiography. The dream turns around this vortex where theory and autobiography meet, where autobiography gestures at a narration that happens elsewhere despite us. Autobiographical accounts that imbricate stories of one's analysis function in this matrix, perhaps just barely closer to the edge of elsewhere. To the extent that an analysis far exceeds what, what is said within it or obtains as an effect of the accumulation of sayings that outlies both the content and the register of enunciation, the book of one's analysis is hardly a rehearsal of that process. If the book lies in the direction of cure, it can only do so as an effect of the analysis of which it is a residue, at the same time that it structures the possibility of an exit from the narrative that one tells with its surplus of meanings. Thus, the status of sig signification at the end of an analysis has started to shift, enough of the unlanguaged having been brought to language so as to change that unlanguaged field and the pressure it exerts. One begins to see dimly the prospect of another relation to speech, to complaint, to responsibility, to love. And if the analyst represents the possibility of representation, then the book of an analysis must itself represent the possibility of replacing that position with something of one's own, the remainder of the process. Once the signifiers are worked and reworked and linked and unlinked and relinked and drained and voided, fallen in exhaustion, flattened of their charge, having served their purpose, enough is enough, something else happens. Somehow from within that ongoing telling where one still needs that object, the analyst, to structure that labor, one must begin to write. Thank you. So next we have Lauren Hatch. So this is a letter to Emma and to those of you who I knew were attending and to those of you who I 
didn't know uh, would be attending, but who at this point that I'm reading this aloud will be present virtually before me. Um, writing this is an intimate and a public act. And as my now preferred or Lieber Emma says, it's hard to write without revealing more than one is really comfortable with. Uh, the level of enthusiasm I feel in sharing these thoughts is perhaps part of my current discomfort, but here it goes. Um, I continue to be struck by the way relationships, friendships, and intellectual kinships form at this stage of life. Now that I'm past, or mostly past, the years of pursuing crepuscular, visceral, pulsating, reckless encounters where minds and bodies merged as dramatically as they moved apart. It's not to say the thrill of those meetings, of those mergers is gone. The, pers the pursuit has merely taken on different structure. Now there is the coming together at a set time, let's say once a week at the matronly hour of 8 a.m. to sit for a set amount of time, let's say for an hour and a half to discuss a set reading, perhaps Freud, Lacan, or Bion. Within this frame, psychoanalysis provides the pulse opening minds to experiences of profound stupidity and transcendent brilliance. It is in such a way that I became acquainted with Emma, and the other way has been through reading The Writing Cure. At the start of 2020, I had a baby, and the world had a pandemic, and a bit later, Emma's book arrived. Uh, doubly quarantined by baby and plague, I read The Writing Cure in snatches, tucked under the covers late at night, relishing the chance to play along with her specific ideas, memories, and words that make up any analysis, but in this case, hers. Um, among the many attributes of Emma's vivid and generous testament to her analysis, it is the humor that first charmed me. From the opening lines describing how the slightest insemination, which is what Emma says she seems to ask of the father of her children, conceived the writing cure, to the bed bug infested marital bed and the cartoon jar of peanut butter with a face wearing a construction hat grinning, known as Snarlag. The absurdity and genius of the unconscious at work is accounted for with great aplomb. A possibly indulgent side note, which the best auto theory seems to inspire in all of us. Last night, as I drifted off to sleep, I was thinking about this letter and arrived at the word aplomb. Perhaps because I'm currently steeped in nursery rhymes, I began to recite Little Jack Horner, who you may know puts his thumb, uh, puts in his thumb, pulls out a plum and says, what a good boy am I. I thought, how phallic. And also, what a good girl Emma is in writing this book. And then I thought of how deftly and clearly she accounts for the little girl castration and femininity in her writing. And as, and as Lieber Emma concludes at one point, it's hard not to admit that the girl's position sounds more fun. To return, Emma writes of her analysis with great aplomb. To arrive at these revelations of the unconscious and to be able to articulate them with such wry and discerning candor is no easy feat. There is a great deal of struggle, of labor, and of angst in metabolizing one, one's life as it shapes and is shaped by theory. Through Emma's writing, we as readers experience what it is to be a good reader of the greats of Russian literature, of the most intransigent points in psychoanalytic theory, and of one's unconscious, down to the pivotal phonemes that merge with the breath and blood of speech. Sorry. In the 
Someone is on. Someone is unmuted. If you could all mute yourselves. In the writing cure, this hard work manifests so fluidly and insightfully that it makes being a reader a true pleasure. And by pleasure, I mean it conjures that sense of merger, of sharing a laugh, of becoming a confidant, of experiencing embarrassment, confusion, and finally separation. The experiences of which I, that are inevitable, but of which I'm also always in pursuit. This is the gift of this book. And as the gift, it deserves nothing less than a love letter in return. Thank you, Lauren. Next, we have Azim Khan. Hi, can you hear me? Yeah, okay. So uh, my piece is titled, Synthom Pass Escobo. There is a moment in Jacqueline Miller's presentation, The Unconscious and the Speaking Body, where Miller offers a very important formulation on the relation between the pass and the synthom two terms that appear in Emma's The Writing Cure, and a third term, the escabo, which does not appear in The Writing Cure. First, I want to introduce Emma's comments in The Writing Cure on the past and the synthome. About the past, Emma writes, quote, I'm studying at a psychoanalytic institute that does not have the procedure of the past. That's fine by me. I don't think it will be up to a school to adjudicate. I suppose I'm offering this book at what feels to me to be the tail end of my analysis as a form of address to anyone who will have it. I suppose that I'm writing it as a way of posing a question to no one in particular in the hopes that the book itself will provide the means of finding an answer which only I can find but which I cannot find alone. I suppose that in the end, the book will at least have posted the question, posed the question, am I an analyst? About the synthome, she writes, I feel that I'm supposed to say something here about the synthome. I had really intended to do so after writing about sublimation and I bought a bunch of books on the synthome for research. Most broadly, and. Uh, the synthome might be understood as a radically new means of inscribing oneself into the social, an autobiography or publication of oneself in which a new genre is invented and for, every and for every subject who does the making. But I didn't read those books and the above comes from notes on public talks that I've attended over the last couple of years. For some reason, I'm loath to say more. So, if the writing cure is not a testimony of the past, but is a testimony nevertheless, and if the writing cure does not push the subject to articulate what she nominates as her synthome, but instead pushes her to a load to say more, how can we, from within the analytic discourse, conceptualize this act of the analysand? I propose here that we could think about the writing cure in terms of the analysis escabo, the public face of the synthome, of which Lacan speaks in relation to Joyce and on which Miller comments in the following terms. Miller says, isn't turning one symptom into an escabo precisely what is at issue in the past, where one plays with one's symptom and one's opaque jouissance? 
to do an analysis is to practice the castration of the escabeau in order to bring to light the opaque jouissance of the symptom. But to do the pass is to play on the symptom that has been uncluttered so as to turn it into an escabeau to the applause of the analytic group. To put it in Freudian terms, this is clearly the fact of sublimation and the applause is not in the least and the applause is not in the least bit adventitious. To be frank, I invented a public monstration of the passes because I knew, I thought, and I believed that this was the very essence of the pass. The escabos are there to produce beauty because beauty is the last defense against the real. But once the escabos have been overturned and burned, it still falls to the anal analyzed par lettre to demonstrate her savoir-faire with the real, to demonstrate how she knew how to make an art object and how she knew how to say it, to say it well. This is what is offered by the first purchase in the invitation to speak up. The event of the past is not the nomination, the decision of a collective of experts. The event of the past is the act of saying on the part of the one sole person. I'm sorry, but uh, I am. I'm, I have to leave because uh, in Central Europe he's uh, very late. Thank you so okay. much for coming. Yeah. See you soon. Okay. See, See you soon. soon. Bye. Bye. <clears throat> Next, we have Evan Malader. Um, okay. Thanks, Emma. Um, at uh, by uh, twelve noon today, I had no idea what I was going to. Um, be reading here. I thought I would write something. And then from my unconscious, the perfect thing just suggested itself to me. Um, this is a short piece of writing, should take a, a precisely five minutes for reasons I will explain shortly. And um, I was astounded to read it about how, um, how much has been added to this short text. Um, I want to say that this writing uh, encompasses aspects of my friendship with Emma. Um, it, it, uh, it, it involves a, a writing project that we started, I think, in 2017. So we've been suffering only one year at that point of, uh, of the Trump regime. And uh, at that time, the, I received a strange email correspondence that turned out to be a hoax aimed specifically at psychotherapists. Uh, Emma and I started a, a kind of writing project based on that. So that was part one, one layer of this little fragment. Then in 2018, Emma said, hey, would you like to go to the moth? Uh, it seems like it would be a fun thing to do. Um, the theme of the moth that day was falling. And I, and I, was, I foolishly thought that the moth was actually what it uh, advertises itself as being, which is anybody could show up and do five minutes of reading. Um, the day before we went, I realized actually you can't read anything. You actually have to memorize and perform five minutes, which five minutes seems easy until you have that task of having to, for the first time, do a, a kind of reading for five minutes. Um, anyway, I want to say that uh, revisiting this is kind of astounding as, again, 
It has something to do with a kind of writing relationship with a friend, Emma, um, that became a kind of speaking. So we go from the writing cure to the speaking cure. But alas, uh, and um, thank God, what happened during that night at the moth was as we began, as Emma and I watched one after another person be called randomly from names in a hat, we uh, realized that these were actor-grade performers who, <laughs> as each one was better than the next, I became more and more terrified <laughs> and prayed to God that I do, would, would not be called. Um, and as it turned out, neither Emma nor I were called up that night. At the end, everyone who wasn't called got to read the first sentence of, of what would have been their, their reading. Um, at that point, I thought that was the end of this writing until it occurred to me at 12 noon today that I should go find this. And it took some doing to even uh, uncover it from, uh, from my archives. Um, anyway, this is a writing that happened in 2018, halfway through the Trump regime, looking back at the beginning of the Trump regime. And here we are, um, hopefully, in the last days of the Trump regime. Um, so this is a reading five minutes precisely, because that's what the moth prescribes. It has to be no more than five minutes. Here we go. It was January 27th, 2017, exactly one week after Donald Trump claimed to be inaugurated in front of the largest crowd ever gathered, that I got an email from a man called Tom Dadson. Subject, hi. Quote, I and my wife need your services as a psychotherapist. Please, can you confirm how much you charge per session? The same day this email arrived, January 27, 2017, President Trump announced his intention to ban Muslims from the country, and Sean Spicer continued to assert that Trump would have won the popular vote if not for massive voter fraud. Sounds kind of familiar. With this context, an email asking for therapy with the subject line, hi, hardly seemed odd or suspect, nor did I notice any indication that I was dealing with perhaps the first ever hoax designed specifically to take in psychotherapists. I responded to Tom sending word of my fee. It is all so easy to see now, but let me ask you seriously, who would ever imagine a hoax that begins by asking a therapist to schedule a couple's counseling session? As my friends worried about fascists marching through the streets of New York, what risk did Tom Dadson pose? that he and his wife would make away with a couple of tasteful pillows or sell my best lines to psychotherapists on the Russian black market? The second email arrived days later. My name is Tom Dadson. I'm 52 years old and my wife's name is Medis Dadson. She's 48 years old. We are Canadian. We always celebrate our wedding anniversary on vacation every year in different places. Tom grandly concluded as if he were announcing that my Grundy Union Square office had been chosen to host the Summer Olympics. We believe New York will be perfect for this 25th anniversary. Next came the heart of the Dadson marital crisis. The reason we need your service is because our marriage has become boring since about six years ago, and we are present, presently considering divorce. There is absolutely no time to spare here in Canada because of our work schedule, unquote. Um, this is me now. Looking back, it's hard to list all the outlandish things about this presentation, 
including the notion that Tom and Middies are so absolutely busy that even though the very basis of their life together, together was threatened, it was not only impossible, but absolutely impossible to get therapy other than while on vacation. Also, maybe someone somewhere thinks it's a, a good idea to combine a 25th wedding anniversary vacation in New York in February with visits to a randomly picked therapist to discuss their moribund marriage and possible divorce. But this, like all the rest, barely registered to me at the time. I was falling for it, but it was hard to see what I was falling for. The second email concluded with their desired schedule for this make or break 25th anniversary six week crash course to save their marriage. Some weeks I would be seeing them once, others twice, eight sessions in six weeks total, six weeks of time to roll back six years of bad sex and boring conversation. Tom sent me a schedule from week one to week six to one or two sessions to be scheduled each week. I spent an actual hour of my actual life figuring out where and when to see them. I sent Tom the proposed schedule and got an almost immediate reply. Excellent. Tom wrote that I should wait for a cashier's check in the mail and let him know as soon as it had arrived. You must be wondering now where the scam is in any of this. I will never know how far I would have gone had I not seen an email a colleague posted to therapists alerting them to be wary of emails asking for couples therapy from a couple claiming to be from Canada. As I read this, I thought, how funny, that is almost like my Datsun case, except mine is not a scam. This colleague explained the way the scam worked. The scamster would ask the therapist their fee with the implication that they could afford it regardless. The therapist would then be sent what appeared to be a cashier's check, only it would be for way too much, an apparent overpayment by error. One would then be asked, in this case by Tom Datsun, to reimburse the difference. The scam, of course, is that one would soon find the check was worthless, but the money I sent would have been all too real. As I read this, my resistance melted and the truth was, re was revealed. This was not just like my beloved Dadson case, it was Dadson, Dadson himself. Or to put it another way, there was no Dadson. Several days later, the check did arrive and was indeed a lot more than I had requested. The check was signed with typical Dadsonian humor by one John W. Borderline. Another in-joke to therapists, presumably meant to be understood only after they had been duly fleeced. I then realized that the name Dadson itself was a joke, a combination of dad and son, a family affair, and perhaps an omen of a new reality that was only beginning to register one week into the reign of Donald J. Trump, our Dadsonian president. Thank you, Evan. Next, we have Matthew Oyer. Dear Emma, it is Friday, the day before your book release. And in angst, I am trying to begin this correspondence of which you are no doubt the object cause, but whose addressee is rather more enigmatic. Reading your delicious, delicate, and I think dangerous supplement, knowing that I was somehow to respond to it, all, to it when all was said and done, has sent me down some strange alleyways. I've always loved alleys. I remember once time seeming to have solidified to a perfect stillness in an alley in Chicago and the magic of stepping back to the sidewalk parade of hyper-reality. 
I remember kicking a can under the summer moon in a college town abandoned by half its population. In both of these, I was young and Allie seemed to retain something of the strangeness of the world of childhood, the same time that they endowed, endowed me with some odd ownership, as if for a moment I might possess my dispossession. New York does not really do alleys, and so here it has been the defiles of the signifier. I wonder, not for the first time, about the relationship between the noun and the verb defile. It allows of your aunt's rule of the shift of the accent from second to first syllable, as well as your observations about objection. Sometimes the shift from the position of analyst and to analyst is felt like the morning of even this uncanny and flickering ownership. Thankfully, one is not analyst all the time, or more likely, one only manages it very little of the time. This morning has had profound effects on my own relationship to writing. Perhaps like Theodore, the possibility of writing to you will come to my rescue. There was a time in my life when I wrote letters, left love poems written on napkins for Waffle House waitresses, sent mixtape missives barreling down early spring highways banked with blackened snow. Cleaning my desk recently, I found a folder with a long letter written from Seattle to a friend living in upstate New York and the wedding toast I had delivered for him, both of which he had given to me several years later on the occasion of my own wedding, in which I had the good sense to stick in my desk without reading. In the folder, there was also a long letter from a girl with whom I had spent childhood missing one another in love. It had a title, Historia Calamitatum. Goaded by you, I reread these letters, or as much as I was able. It was indeed a calamity. Reading this me, I little recognized and who sounded so untroubled by how little he knew, how arrogant and how frail he was, made me want to jump out of my skin. It didn't make writing this letter easier, urgently demanding as it did leave no trace. What was a, a bit uncanny was finding amidst the purple prose that, that I had paraphrased the Peter Abelard quotation my missed encounter had enclosed in her letter received two or three years before. Quote, and therefore, because I too have known some consolation from speech had with one who was a witness thereof, am I now minded to write of the sufferings which have sprung out of my misfortunes, for the eyes of one who, though absent, is of himself ever a consoler. This reminds me of what you wrote about quoting others' quotations and reading the text and the text reading you. I believe that Abelard came to my youthful 2K by way of Henry Miller from Avalard to Miller, to my missed encounter, to me, to my friend, and back to me, and now to you, Erie Addressee. I don't know what it is, or even so much that it is, this perhaps nothing, only that it has been transmitted. It cannot be possessed, and me mine, but it can be written. Thank you for the generosity of your words. Love, Matthew. Thank you, Matthew. Last, we have Jason Royal. Um, so I wrote something this week on, on writing. Um, so we can. Writing is always writing to a fantasy. Even when you know to whom you're writing, one imagines one's reader, and that one imagines oneself as the reader. A good writer, it is said, writes with a specific reader in mind, and by doing so, ideally writes in a way that can be read, comprehended, heard by that reader. This all seems so clear. 
Yet then there is the blank page. What is it that's there or not there on the blank page? Or maybe it's a question of who. Of course, on one level, nothing, nothing is there or no one. It is blank after all. Still, with this blank page, the writer confronts something, something unsettling. When one writes, types the letters onto the page, something or someone comes into being. It is, of course, for example, me. It will be my writing. Even so, there's this strange, uncanny potentiality in this moment. Who will this me be when it comes out onto the page through the letters and words that I write? Though I know they are my words, it is especially the case that when I'm writing something creative, when I'm writing to find out something, to think, I both may have a sense of what might emerge, but I also do not. And then there is the question, who will the others see in my writing? In a sense, writing is both me, I will answer for it, and yet it also functions something like a doppelganger, released into the world, a double that is not quite separate from me, or perhaps better put, more like an avatar, whose effects will materialize in the minds of my readers as they read my words and in ways that I do not suspect, or more unsettling, in ways that I may suspect but cannot confirm. As I write this, I realize that I'm now here articulating, yes, I'm writing to a fantasy. I'm back where I started. And this fantasy, as perhaps all fantasies do, is cropping up at the point where the unsettling quality of the blank page occurs. This point of anxiety of the blank page and the fantasy that crops up around it under the best of circumstances flickers by. One is encouraged to pass it by quickly, even dismissively. Just get something down, just write it. These ubiquitous instructions and advice on how to write without getting stuck advice that seems so practical, so no-nonsense, is somehow linked, as I think about it, to a whistling in the dark that gets one through the encounter with the blank page. With writing, one wants to write something alive. And yet perhaps it is a fear that, once the letters mark the page, that something will fail to come alive, that it will remain dead letters on the page, or that it will be too alive, too vulnerable, too revealing. What will be realized or released by writing? From another angle, the fear may be that the writer does bring something alive, but that it cannot be understood by others, a miasmic aliveness that leaves something unborn in the mind of the reader. Indeed, somehow, life and death, through the qualities of aliveness or deadness, are at play in writing, with the act of writing perhaps being a kind of dance between the two. Last winter, I was walking in a snowy Central Park with a friend. As we walked on winding paths, I could see the patches of tall dead plants, milkweed and such, rising up out of the vast carpeting blankness of the snow recently fallen. Though these long, dried, rusty brown stems and the few leaves still clinging to them were, of course, dead, something of how they were shaped, bent by the force of the wind and weather, gave them an arching, reaching quality, as if, having managed not to be broken by the force of the elements, 
the bodies of these plants had finally given themselves to poses, somehow expressive, timeless, even yearning, made only more so by being occasionally swayed by a breeze. An expressive quality, akin to the way a dancer might give their body to a gesture that transmits something ineffably vital, both joyful and aching, reaching up. At the same time, these plants, perhaps only weeds, in the shape of their winter afterlife, also had the liveliness, even sharpness, of a calligraphy rendered against the snowy whiteness, as if realized with a flourishing stroke by a sure hand. Dead, like ink on paper, but dead letters that, against the bright emptiness of the snow, had somehow come back to a life they'd never quite had when actually alive. Of course, it made me wonder what these beautiful botanical letters, shaped by the wind and snow, might be saying. I realize as I write this, that beyond the anxiety of the blank page, which after all might strike one as a chilly winter wind that can threaten breakage, as it were, on the other side of all this may lie something like a resurrection. Is the liveliest writing, writing that speaks finally through the emptiness of the blank page, is this writing lively? Does it give the sense of something new precisely because through it, something previously unspoken, unvoiced, is not simply born, but resurrected, such that through dead letters, our dead, those doppelgangers and avatars of ourself, ourselves previously perhaps unknowingly left for dead, come to speak to us of a life that is possible, a life that we glimpse in turn only through the act of writing it. Thank you, Jason. That's all the writing we have for today. So I want to thank you all so much for being here and for sharing your virtual presence and your writing. Um, you know, Jason leaves us with the prospect of winter and it's gonna be a long winter, but maybe a good time to do some writing. So I wish you all happy writing and thank you again. Thank you for listening to Rendering Unconscious. You just heard the book launch for Emma Lieber's brand new book, The Writing Cure, from Bloomsbury. For more, please grab yourself a copy of this book. Links to everything are included in the text accompanying this episode. You may also enjoy Dr. Lieber's work in rendering unconscious the book. Rendering unconscious psychoanalytic perspectives, politics, and poetry. Available from trapart.net. That's T-R-A-P-A-R-T dot net. You can support the podcast by visiting our Patreon. P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com forward slash V-A-N-E-S-S-A two three 
C-A-R-L. Your support is greatly appreciated. Links to everything can be found in the text accompanying this episode.
enough, but I tried. There are doorways I haven't opened, and windows I've yet to look through. Going forward may not be the answer. Maybe I should go back. If I don't know who I am, I might find out who I was.